The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter Nine, Evasion and Camping in the Rain. The driver of the little Ford Focus in front of Isabel was not inclined to halt at the sawhorse roadblock. Instead, she veered sharply left, bumped one wheel up on the sidewalk, and drove around the little blue sawhorses. Almost. Her fender pushed one of the sawhorses over, unleashing a flurry of shouts from the upset young officer. Isabel and the cars behind her quickly followed the focus. "'What is he trying to do?' Susan looked back. "'They must not have enough cruisers to block off all the streets,' Martin guessed. So this poor rookie was dropped off out here with just a couple of sawhorses. Still, I bet he'll eventually get it blocked. All he needs is one overly obedient citizen to stop on the bridge, and everything's clogged up. Yeah, but why block the streets? Susan persisted. That makes no sense. I don't get it either. That trooper back there said only people who lived in Reading could come in. Maybe there's some sort of order about local traffic only. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me either, but I'm glad we're past him. Tell Isabel that we're almost back to Route 28, Martin said. We'll, uh, we'll turn right. The line of traffic traveling north on 28 was moving slowly, with little space between any of the cars. Isabel says she knows this road, said Susan. She knows which way to go now. With no hesitation... Isabel pushed out, inserting the corner of her hood between a minivan and a pale yellow pickup truck. The pickup driver laid on the horn, but made the tactical error of braking slightly, too. That was all Isabel needed to enlarge her foothold and enter the stream of traffic. "'We're not going much faster than a walk,' Martin said, "'but I'm glad we're riding instead of walking. My knee is really enjoying the brake.' Isabel has been thanking us profusely for helping her pass that roadblock. She's one happy mama, said Susan. Well, I'm glad she's happy, but we're not there yet, said Martin. I'm still wondering what's up with all these roadblocks. Hey, maybe there's something on the news that'll make some sense of all this. Tell her to turn on her radio. Susan relayed the request. Isabel popped on the radio. The announcer rattled off Spanish commentary at warp speed. Martin felt a little naive for expecting the announcer to be speaking English. It was one of those duh moments that he kept to himself. So, what did they say? Got me, said Susan. I thought Isabel spoke fast. I'll see if she can summarize for me. The two women began a long string of back-and-forth exchanges. Martin used the time to survey traffic. The northbound lanes were moving slowly, but there was little traffic coming southbound. Was this the general outward migration? There seemed to be few side streets. If traffic stopped, would they get stuck? The yellow pickup behind them was riding Isabel's bumper. He was obviously in a bigger hurry than traffic would allow. Isabel said the governor has declared a state of emergency. I guess there have been some violent protests in Dorchester and Roxbury. A food protest in Mattapan got bad, and several policemen were injured, so the governors called up the National Guard to help keep the peace. She said they're telling everyone to stay home and not be on the streets. <laughs> oh, I'd love to comply, said Martin. I sure wish I'd paid more attention in my Spanish classes, said Susan. 
Heck, said Martin. I wish I'd have paid more attention to Sesame Street when the kids were watching it. Besides the numbers, I think I only learned one other word in Spanish. Oh, what was that? Oh, sure. Now that I said that, I can't think of it. Well, it's not like I ever used it. Martin racked his brain for the old memories. There was this uh, big bird. Well, not the big bird. It was a big uh, flamingo. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was doing a play or uh, hold on a skit. No, no, it was an opera. The bird was called Placio Flamingo. Yeah, yeah. He was singing about danger as he wrecked the stage set. <laughs> I loved that bit. Oh, yeah, now I remember. The word was Pelegro, Martin announced triumphantly. Pelegro? gasped Isabel. She slammed on her brakes. Martin was thrown against Susan's seat back. The yellow pickup squealed to a stop just inches behind Isabel's Honda. The angry driver gunned his engine and veered around Isabel's Honda. Out of the window he hurled insults, but they were drowned out by the roar of his big V8. ¿Dónde está el parreglo? she demanded, glancing around nervously. Danger, said Susan, brushing the hair out of her eyes. That's your one word? Ah, uh, jeez, Martin said. Yeah, that had to be the only word I know. Susan tried to explain to Isabel about Martin's Sesame Street memories, but Martin interrupted. Uh, hold on, uh, what's going on up there? He pointed ahead of them. A policeman full of riot gear was talking to the driver of a gray sedan. The yellow pickup tried to pass them on the right, which brought out a swarm of other policemen in black gear, with ARs aimed at the driver. They ordered the yellow pickup driver to turn into an adjacent parking lot where many other detained drivers stood beside their cars or sat inside them. The gray sedan driver took advantage of the distraction to execute a hasty U-turn. He was temporarily blocked by another car, also making a sloppy three-point turn. Martin stepped out and waved down the gray sedan driver. Hey, uh, what, what's going on up there? he asked. They're checking ID. If you don't live in Reading, you have to go into that lot over there. Well, then what? Oh, no idea. I ain't gonna find out. The gray sedan sped away. Martin got back in Isabel's Honda. They're stopping people without local ID. Why? <laughs> no clue. That was all the guy said. None of this makes any sense, but if they're using guns, it can't be good. We need to turn back and find a way around this. More impatient drivers drove around Isabel's stopped Honda. They, too, got pulled over by the SWAT team. Have her turn into this side lot over here. I need a sec to look at my map. Are there riots or something up ahead? Susan asked. Is that why they're stopping lawn locals? Yeah, who knows? Have Isabel keep listening for news. We need to know what's going on out there. We've had power outages before that lasted longer than two days, without riots breaking out. This must be something else, too. Martin's finger traced along the map. We need to take some side streets and get around the center of Reading. We passed a little side street back there. Susan relayed what Martin had said. Isabel veered around a fence and into the next parking lot. Ah, oh, this is good, Martin said. I think these parking lots connect. Keep going. They eventually bumped out onto a narrow side street. It ended in a T at another street. She's asking which way to go now, said Susan. Give me a minute, Martin studied his map. It was clear that all the main roads converged on Reading Center. If the authorities were out to stop traffic, that would be the place to block. Wait, what's that over there? Martin pointed at a narrower road on the right. 
That's not on my map or her GPS, but it looks like it goes behind these commercial buildings. Tell her to try that way. Isabel kicked up a swirl of dry leaves as she sped down the narrow commercial driveway. Vast parking lots stretched out behind the low brick buildings. Isabel drove around parked cars and concrete dividers. The last parking lot ended, however, at a landscaped berm. Separating the parking lots was a bark-mulched ridge, about three feet high, with a line of yew bushes atop it. Ah, shoot, Martin said. So close. That's the road we need, right over there. It connects back to the main road, he pointed between two ragged bushes. Isabel sat up tall in her seat to see where Martin pointed. She said something to Susan, then backed up a few feet. She aimed her car's nose at a wider gap between two bushes. Susan braced herself. Hang on back there. She's going for it. Martin started to ask what she was going for, but grabbed the door's armrest and seat back. The little Honda bounced up, then down the other side onto the pavement. Martin's head hit the roof. Toys landed in his lap. Ow, oh, man! She is clearly not babying this car, said Martin. Isabel quickly found the exit, crossed some railroad tracks, and sped up the little side road. Which way now? asked Susan. Martin uncrumpled his map. Uh, left at the next intersection, then uh, another right. Tell her not to drive so crazy. We don't want to be attracting attention. After several turns and side roads, the three had found their way back to Route 28 North. Traffic was not as thick and moving at a better pace. Isabel said the radio reported that they're calling for a curfew in lots of towns because of some riots, something about some policeman killed by a mob. She, she didn't hear where. Boy, things are getting nasty kind of fast, said Martin. Uh, tell her to turn right up ahead there. The radio station faded out steadily. Isabel messed with the dial but there was mostly just dead air or static. She dialed past an English-speaking station. The signal was weak and scratchy, but at least Martin could understand what they said. Wait, wait, tell her to go back to that one, Martin said. Reported a dozen people injured. I've been told that the protest started with a large crowd demanding that city officials seize of the supermarket and distribute the food to the hungry residents. Supposedly, someone in the crowd fired shots on the police, injuring two officers. I say supposedly because when I traveled to Stoneham to try and interview the injured officers, I was unable to locate any of them. Stoneham, said Susan. We were just there. Do you think he was talking about the stop and shop that we were at? I don't know, replied Martin. Maybe there's other supermarkets. Unable to reach the stop-and-shop building either, the area cordoned off and roadblocks set up prevent more looters from cannot confirm, but there are. The station finally faded out. Wow. It was the stop and shop that we were at, exclaimed Susan. Sounds like we got out just in the nick of time, huh? Martin grunted in agreement, but his mind was already down a rabbit trail. The crowd around that stop and shop were not the least bit rowdy. Even the people who had to step out of line for lack of a local ID were well behaved. No one was shouting or chanting slogans. Had a fight broken out over the trash pile? Martin could not even recall seeing any police officers. 
Walgreens and CVS each had one, but there was none at Stop and Shop. Maybe things escalated very quickly after they left. Or maybe they hadn't. The last thought was on the edge of a black hole that Martin was reluctant to enter. Isabel is so grateful for us helping her, said Susan. She's offering to drive us all the way up to New Hampshire. Oh, well, that would be great, Martin said. Tell her thanks. Uh, we might get home before dark after all. That would be so nice, said Susan. I really didn't want to sleep in the woods again. As they approached the interchange of 495, traffic grew thick and finally slowed to a crawl. When it stopped, Martin got out and looked up ahead with his little binoculars. There's a trooper up there, a black SUV with blue lights, a couple of lines of those orange barrels, too. Is it a barricada? Uh, a barricade? Martin asked. Uh, yeah, uh, see, si, barricada. This one is different, though. They're turning some people away, but letting others through. Maybe it's that residency thing. Susan spoke to Isabel, who then dug in her purse. She showed her driver's license to Susan. Isabel has her ID, said Susan. It has a Lawrence address. That might get us through the roadblock, right? Oh, maybe, Martin was hopeful. She asked if it'd be okay if she checked on her boys before she drives us up to New Hampshire, Susan relayed. Well, of course, Martin said, and even if she just drives us up to Salem or maybe Wyndham and save us hours of walking, tell her thanks again. Martin peered at his map for the shortest route to his house from southern Wyndham. He imagined sitting in his comfy chair again in front of his warm wood stove instead of sleeping in the cold woods. The mental images cheered him up. Walking home had been more tiring and spartan than he had imagined. The trooper waved Isabel ahead and motioned for her to roll down her window. License, please, the trooper said in a weary monotone. Isabel just smiled. Licencia, por favor. His Spanish couldn't have been any more gringo. He squinted at her license as if trying to decide if it were counterfeit, but handed it back to her. Your license too, ma'am, he said to Susan. And yours too, sir. But why? Susan asked. We're with her, Martin said, pointing to Isabel. Doesn't matter. I need to see your ID too. The trooper recited a prepared statement that he was obviously tired of reciting. As of this morning, Governor Baylock has officially declared the state of emergency for the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts and ordered the implementation of mass emergency situation function plans. Per MESF codes, only legal residents will be allowed to enter the emergency zones. This area has been declared an emergency zone. Let me see your IDs. Martin fished in his wallet. Susan dug through her purse. Uh, we're not trying to stay in a Lawrence officer. We're just trying to get up to New Hampshire. He handed his driver's license to the trooper. Susan did, too. Doesn't matter, said the trooper. Only residents are allowed beyond this point. But, hey, didn't you hear me? The trooper was losing his patience. Only residents. All three of you just turn this heap around or you two get out of the car and she goes in. Make up your minds right now. Susan explained to Isabel what the trooper had said. Isabel shook her head vehemently, speaking very fast. Look, Martin said to Susan, we should just get out. Better that she gets up to her kids than get stuck out here because of us. I agree, said Susan. She told Isabel, who continued to protest. The trooper yelled at Isabel to get moving. Susan waved as Isabel drove under the bridge. Poor thing, she felt really bad. I told her that we would be okay and she should take good care of her boys. 
This state of emergency thing is getting kind of nuts. Martin wondered if there'd been riots in Lawrence. Were they worried about carloads of outside instigators that would stream in and inflame things? Like local residents couldn't cause enough trouble? Martin walked slowly ahead of Susan while he studied his map. Well, thanks to Isabel, we got a lot farther than we would have on foot. Now we just have to see how far we can get before dark. He showed Susan the map. If we backtrack to this road here, we can go up this way toward Haverhill. We need to get across the river somehow, and there aren't all that many bridges. Won't they just be blocked off for residents only, too? Well, maybe. I'm thinking about this bridge here. It might be better. He tapped on the map with his finger. 495 crosses this loop of the river here, see? There's an exit there, but it's an industrial park. Oh, so? So there might not be a big line of traffic there. Maybe even light coverage with troopers or police, since it's not a route to anybody's house. I'm thinking that maybe we could cut through some woods and sneak across one of those bridges. And then what? Um, I'm not sure. That's as much plan as I have right now. We'll just have to see what our options are, if and when we get there. While they walked the narrow back streets of North Andover, Martin was juggling more mental balls than he liked. People seemed so calm yesterday, annoyed but relatively calm, that fight at La Quinta seemed like a statistical outlier rather than a trend. This morning, they saw more of the same complacency, people waiting for their usual routines to return. There was some tension at Andrew's Market and those gas stations, but by and large, people were still acting pretty typical. Well, not all that good, he thought, but at least typical. Had things suddenly gone nuts in just two days? Protesters demanding food and clashing with police? Riots? This was only the third day without power. Martin didn't want to believe that civility could collapse so quickly. Maybe there had been riots in the inner-city neighborhoods. It didn't take but a day or two for the Ferguson trouble to boil over into riots. Was that happening here? A vague third option danced around the edges of his thinking, like a persistent gnat. Were the reports fake? That seemed impossible to pull off. Even if they could, why would they? He had no warm feelings toward Massachusetts government, but neither was he one of those twitchy-eyed old coots in tinfoil hats, bristling with paranoia about the government. He had a hard time picturing mass government as the diabolical beast from the Book of Revelation. A pack of 300-pound keystone cops seemed more fitting. They didn't seem competent enough to be deliberately evil. Trying to rationalize what he had seen and knew, he wondered if the governor knew that the outage was going to be a long one. Food and fuel shipments would be virtually halted. Trouble could brew up. Were they trying to get everyone locked down before riots? Real riots could break out? Were the riot stories just to scare people into complying with their stern emergency protocols? Was it authoritarian control via the smokescreen of public safety? Hey, could we take a break? Susan called out. Huh? Uh, sure. Sorry. Uh, I've been kind of lost in thought. I noticed. You haven't said a word for blocks. I thought you were really angry or something. Well, no, not angry, just thinking. I guess. You walked right through that busy road back there without even looking. Good thing those people slowed down for you. Martin felt embarrassed. He didn't remember crossing any busy roads, nor had he noticed the tree-lined suburb had morphed into the low scrabble of a retail zone. 
He certainly scored no points for situational awareness. No, no more deep thinking, he resolved. Not until I'm safely at home in my comfy chair again. He pointed up ahead. Uh, how about that planter around that sign over there? Sounds good, she said. I just need to sit for a while. Martin coaxed Susan into checking her blister bandaging. The gauze did need to be replaced. He insisted on checking her other foot for any blisters in the making. She reluctantly agreed. Martin noted that she did not close her eyes or look away this time. She did, however, resume her sad, puzzled look. Without looking up from applying fresh tape, Martin said, Your feet still aren't weird, by the way. She didn't answer. He looked over at her. She was not looking at her feet, but at him. He was a bug under the magnifying glass again. What? He sounded a little more annoyed than he was. Nothing, she answered slowly, like a kid who had a frog in her pocket at church. Uh-huh. Martin wasn't buying it, but he had a feeling he was better off not knowing. They were at Sutton Street. It was not as wide as Route 125, but it seemed just as full of traffic. Martin noticed more abandoned cars along the side of the road. Hoods open, doors ajar. People must have used up whatever gas they had in their tanks, trying to get around the roadblocks. More people walked on the sidewalks, too. Perhaps the gasless drivers. From their frowns, they seemed like a cranky bunch. Okay, Susan said. Ready. She had her socks and shoes on, and her bag poised to roll. All right, then. Martin stood and stretched. He felt dog-tired. He stopped in mid-stretch. Across the street, a railroad crossing sign caught his eye. He looked at his map again. The tracks came out of Lawrence and followed the river before turning up to Haverhill. What do you say we take the tracks up to the bridges? It'll be a little trickier walking, but to tell you the truth, melding into these other walkers doesn't seem like a good idea. Maybe I'm just a little spooked by those apartment people back there, but being in a crowd seems like a bad idea right now. I know what you mean. Let's take the tracks. Martin carried the wheel's end of Susan's roller bag. She carried the handle. They looked like hobo stretcher bearers. In the distance, an occasional siren wailed into earshot, then faded out. Sporadic car horns were proof that frustrated drivers were still trying to get around. It was all muffled, like a television playing in another room. It was in somebody else's reality. Alone, on the quiet tracks, between the red, yellow, and brown trees, it was like a world removed. Walking single file didn't encourage conversation. Despite his resolution not to get lost in thought again, he did. Would there be policemen blocking the road to the bridge? Would they be on the bridge? They seemed to be trying to cordon off the areas between the interstates. Perhaps this was easier, since fewer roads crossed interstates. There was less to block. Even still, were there enough policemen in the state to block all those roads? That seemed unlikely. Given the modern commuter lifestyle, few people work near home. What would all of those out-of-area people do for housing? Assuming that everyone settled down within the cordons, what did the authorities plan to do after that? Did they expect all of the non-residents would get put up in the homes of the residents? How long would that last? Perhaps that's where the FEMA camps would come in. Maybe that's what the SWAT teams were doing in the middle of Reading. The pretense could be that authorities were just trying to help all of those displaced people. Why not just let them all get home? 
being helped at the point of a carbine was not all that comforting. Without houses, intersections, or landmarks, it was hard to gauge their progress. The sky had been overcast all day, but was getting darker. Subtle proof that time was not as frozen as it seemed. About the time that Martin spotted the overpass in the distance, he began to feel drops on his cheeks. He hoped it was just a passing sprinkle, but it picked up. It's starting to rain, Susan said from behind him. Martin set down the roller bag. I was hoping it would stop, but the sky seems pretty dark, so I don't think it will. I didn't grab my raincoat, she said, or an umbrella. Well, I've got one of us covered, Martin rummaged in his backpack. I've got one of these dollar store plastic ponchos. Here, he handed it to her. You don't have two? I can't take your only one, she handed it back to him. No, no, take it. I'll be okay. My jacket is water-resistant-ish, and I've got my cap. Go ahead, put it on, before you get too wet. When they got to the overpass, Martin had Susan wait beneath the bridge while he scrambled up the brushy embankment. He wanted to see if the police had the road blocked off. They did. A black suburban with blue lights flashing blocked one side of the divided roadway. A fire chief's big red sedan blocked the other side. A large state trooper stood nearer 125 with an impressive none-shall-pass posture. The traffic coming and going along 125 was taking the hint. Martin couldn't see far up the road toward 495. He scrambled back down the embankment. They have the access road blocked off, he reported. There could be others up nearer the interchange, but I couldn't see that from here. I think we'll have to go back to that little road that, that crossed the tracks back there. I think that goes up far enough, and it'll get us closer. Looks like you might be right about this little road, Susan pointed to a pair of sawhorses and a half a dozen cones where the road met the highway. The police didn't seem to think it'd be worth guarding. The sprinkle developed into a light rain. Drips fell from the bill of Martin's cap. The shoulders of his jacket were starting to get wet. The heavy sky promised more rain. Through a break in the trees, Martin could see the side of a large commercial building. Two police cars and a handful of officers stood on a loose line, weapons at flat stock or low ready. There's a BJ's over there, Martin pointed. Looks like they're expecting trouble. Looters, maybe? Susan offered. Maybe. Guess that's why they only left sawhorses back there. More men to guard the BJ's. Maybe there really were riots and lootings, Martin thought. Why else would they waste manpower guarding a BJ's if the stories were fake? Of course, this only proves that these cops believed the stories were true, not that they were true. Perhaps the state house isn't sharing their plans with the locals. What if the cops aren't guarding the BJ's, but maybe taking control of it? Looks like the end of our road, said Susan. The pavement ended in a parking lot beside a commercial building. It's getting dark, she added, and the rain isn't letting up. We need to find some place to get out of the rain, at least. I know, I know. 495 must be just beyond those tall trees, said Martin. I bet we can find a dry spot under one of those bridges. He found a section of chain-link fence mashed down by a fallen tree. They crossed over into the woods. Martin led the way to the left, along the embankment, toward the river. The structure of the bridge loomed over the trees and brush. The land under the bridge sloped down gently, from the rip-rap abutment to the river, roughly thirty yards away. 
Those thirty yards were covered in brush, weeds, and brambles. Well, at least it's dry under here, Martin said. That's great. Susan did not sound all that impressed. What do we do now? Hmm. Well, the day's pretty well spent, he said, and the rain doesn't sound like it's going to let up any time soon. We should probably stay here for the night, or until the rain stops. I don't want to sound like a whiny princess, but I'm wet and cold and very tired. You wouldn't happen to have a collapsible clothes dryer in your magical backpack, would you? <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, Martin said. I figured, but it didn't hurt to ask. When I was still living at home, when I felt a chill that I just couldn't shake, I would put my heavy flannel pajamas in the dryer for ten minutes. Oh, that felt good. Martin looked around on the ground. No collapsible dryers, but maybe I can get us a little fire going. Not as cozy as flannel jammies, but it'll help. Make a fire? Out of what? Everything is wet. Well, maybe not everything. Why don't you scour around in the brush under this bridge, and the other one over there. Whatever's under the bridge should still be dry. Gather up all the dry twigs, dead branches, and anything else that looks good for firewood. Okay. I'll go back into the woods and see what I can find. Susan began searching the ground between the scrubby bushes. Martin headed back out into the light rain. The canopy of leaves was still shedding the early rain, so beneath the trees was still relatively dry. He found several good low-hanging dead branches that were still dry. He broke off what he could, sometimes using his puny multi-tool saw to score the bigger ones for easier breaking. Martin gasped. <gasps> Jackpot! He dropped his arm full of branches. A tall, slender tree, dead for a few years, had fallen over, but gotten hung up in the branches of two medium-sized oaks. From the pattern of the branching, it appeared to have been a maple. Good hardwood. The twigs and bark were gone from the upper half. The base was all pithy from rot. Now to get you down, my pretty, Martin said in his Witch of the West voice. He tried shaking and bouncing the maple, but the branches were too interlocked. Martin squatted down at the rotten base of the maple to see if he could yank it loose from the oaks. He was more successful than he expected. The butt of the maple was not attached, but simply sitting on the ground. His tug released the power of gravity. The dead maple lunged forward, knocking Martin to the ground. Several sharp cracks rang out from overhead as branches broke. The maple fell. Martin stood up, laughing as he brushed the wet leaves off himself. Well, now to make you more portable, he said to the tree. The upper branches broke off easily enough. More good medium wood for the fire. What they needed were some thicker logs that would last longer. He positioned the maple between two oak trunks and pushed. A strong push broke off the barkless top. He wanted one more big break to give him three manageable pieces. He positioned the trunk between the oaks and pushed again. Nothing, not even a crack. He flung himself at the maple trunk. He bounced off. Martin? Susan called out. Are you out there? Yeah, I I'm over here. I heard a lot of crashing and, and cracking. Are, are you okay? Well, pretty much. I found some good big wood, but I could use your help. He showed her the maple trunk between the two oaks. His plan was for her to pull and him to push at the far end for best leverage. They would use bounces to create some peak stresses and break the maple. The first few tries yielded a few encouraging cracking sounds, but no break. 
Hold on, Martin said. Let me shift it over. All these little mushrooms on the bark could mean a weaker spot. Okay, this time for sure. On three. Martin braced himself and started the bounce. One, two. The maple broke with a dull crunch on the second bounce. The sudden release sent Susan onto her back. The log was going to fall on top of her. So with the last of his shaky footing, Martin tried to toss the log upwards like a volleyball player's diving save. The log did arc up over Susan's head, but Martin fell partially on top of her. It took him a moment to get his bearings. He pushed himself up on his arms. The log had landed ahead of him. That was good. Susan? She was looking up at him with wide eyes. It was a startled expression, but there was an animal-like fear in her eyes. She had her arms tight on her chest, fists up by her neck. Don't, she gasped. Huh? Uh, are you okay? he asked. She didn't answer. Her eyes shifted back and forth, looking into his right eye or his left. Martin realized that he was looking into her eyes. He had no business looking into her eyes. His face felt hot. He rolled left and scrambled to his feet. I'm really sorry, he stammered. He felt like he had dented a friend's car or a fireman that had dropped the cat he was trying to rescue. I, I, I really didn't think it was going to break like that. He offered his hand to help her up, but she ignored it and got up on her own. Uh, are, are you hurt? She backed up a step as she stood. She kept looking at Martin as she brushed the leaves off her pants. Her expression morphed from worry to sadness. This made Martin squirm inside. He had put a big dent in his friend's car. Or maybe he ran over the cat. I feel awful about this, Martin said. We need, needed some bigger wood, you, you see, to, to make the fire last, and it's okay, she said flatly. Nothing about her body language agreed with her words. Rain drizzling down Martin's collar reminded him of his goal of making a fire. Well, uh, I, I'm going to take this wood under the bridge, so it... Um, Martin rushed to gather up the sections of maple in his arms. Action always felt better than searching for words that wouldn't come. He returned to get his pile of dead branches. Susan still stood, staring at the ground. I'm going to make that fire now, he said. You should at least come stand under the bridge, uh, out of the rain. Martin dropped his armload at the base of the bridge's heavy stone riprap. He set about pulling up the weeds and scrawny brushes around his pile of logs, to make a small clearing. He set the pulled brush atop the edge bushes to improve their visual screen. A few other stones were small enough that he could muscle them down the embankment and set them up as a back wall for their fire. He didn't want their little campfire to be seen far and wide, especially from the deck of the southbound bridge. He pulled two of the maple logs up to his rock screen and built a crisscross of broken branches. He tore a half-page of his spare-change news and wadded it up into a ball. Around that paper ball he made a teepee of little twigs that Susan had gathered. Out of the corner of his eye he could see Susan walking slowly toward his little camp. He made no sign that he had seen her, but just went on building his fire lay. A click of his disposable lighter had yellow licks eagerly consuming the twigs. The warmth from even that little fire felt surprisingly good. He slowly fed a few bigger sticks to avoid choking the fire and making lots of smoke. The flickering yellow light reflected on Susan, standing nearby. 
It's a small fire, he said. It won't throw heat very far. She squatted down on the opposite side of the fire. She had her arms folded on top of her knees and her nose behind her arms. She was a little ball. The fire glinted off the moisture in her eyes. Uh, are you all right? Martin asked. I'm fine, she said quietly. Fine. There was that word again. Martin was not fluent in woman speak, but he knew that fine meant just about anything but fine. Well, I don't mean to be all pushy, he began, but you don't look fine. Are you sure you didn't get hurt in the fall? No. She kept her eyes fixed on the little yellow flame. Something's bothering you. He wanted to sound reassuring, but he had no confidence that he did. I'd really rather you talked about it. It's going to be a long night. She turned her eyes and looked at him. That's just it. What's just it? Last night we were only resting, but fell asleep. Then it was over. I know I said I was okay with walking to your house, but that was during the day, and it sometimes seemed like we'd be there before dark, so I really didn't think about it. But now... Martin could feel a cold shiver as he realized what she was afraid of. And now you're a woman alone in the dark in a remote woods, Martin finished her sentence. He also felt stupid and insensitive for not realizing it sooner. And with a guy you barely know. She kept her eyes on him, but gave a little nod. Martin realized that his falling on her was uncomfortably similar to an assault, even if purely accidental. For all he knew, she had bad past experiences with assault, and he just triggered it. He hated the thought that something terrible like that might have happened to her in the past. Oh, God, now what have I done, he thought. Now I'm not just insensitive, I'm cruelly insensitive. In the past two days, he had seen in her eyes rage, sorrow, worry, even some laughter. When she was on her back, he had seen paralyzing fear. He felt horrible for being the cause of such a look. I'm really sorry about that, back there. He tried to sound gentle and as unthreatening as possible. Probably nothing I can say will ever be reassuring enough. Oh, heck, I really stink at being reassuring. But for what it's worth, I, I would never, ever... Again, no gentle synonyms for rape came to mind. Uh, do anything to hurt you. She continued to stare at him with her sad, puzzled look. The moisture in her eyes grew. I tell you what, Martin said as he rummaged in his pocket. Words are inadequate, but maybe this will help. He unfolded his multi-tool so that the knife blade was out. He set it on the ground at her feet. How about if I give you the knife for tonight? She looked at the multi-tool and then back to Martin. Her sad, puzzled look got more puzzled. She reached out and took the little tool, then refolded her arms. She clutched the little blade in her fist. Martin heaved a sigh. It was all he could think to do, but it still felt woefully inadequate. He fed the fire a few more branches. He needed to get them better set up for the cold night ahead. Setting up a little campsite was a welcome escape from her sad, puzzled look. We'll need to gather up some more of these dry leaves to make us some insulation, like last night. And I'd like to set up a little lean-to to help keep some of the fire's heat closer. She didn't move, but watched his actions with her eyes. He walked out into the brush. 
The air was quite a bit cooler. The little fire did make a difference. He found a sort of saplings that he was looking for, then broke them off. On the way back to the campfire, he stripped off the leaves and twigs. Here, he put the sticks in front of her. You've got the knife, so could you whittle the ends of these two poles into points? I want to push them into the ground. Without waiting to see if she would whittle the sticks, he dug in his bag and pulled out one of the mylar blankets and a roll of paracord. He smiled when he turned back. She was finishing the point on the second stick. Okay, while I work with these sticks, you should round up some more armfuls of leaves. She returned after a few minutes with an armful as he finished lashing together the frame. He draped the mylar over the little ridgepole stick. Put the leaves under there. The mylar will reflect the heat from the fire. That looks kind of small, she said cautiously. It'll be enough for one, you. But what about you? Are you going to set up another shelter for you, too? Nope. One of us has to stay awake and tend the fire and keep watch. While I was out looking for sticks, I checked to see how visible we were. The good news is we're good as long as we keep the fire low. Little fires, however, need to be fed more often. But no buts. You curl up in there as best you can. I'll sit over here on the other side of the fire. You'll have the knife. You'll be okay. Martin sat on his pile of leaves and leaned back against the backrest of pine branches that he had propped against a large stone. He could reach his pile of firewood without having to lean forward. He reasoned that he could get a bit of rest and still keep something of a watch. He hoped that anyone approaching would make noise moving through the tangled brush. Susan had curled up on her side, facing the fire. "'I'm uh, going to set up a little rain catcher,' he said to her. We'll need more water tomorrow, and it's abundant right now. He draped the poncho between some branches to form a shallow V, clipped his pen to the bottom edge of the plastic to provide a weight and a path for the dripping water. Beneath the pen, he positioned one of their half-gallon milk jugs. It would take a good while for the light rain to fill it, but they did have all night. Martin took the long way back, rechecking how visible their fire might be from various angles. With the power out, any light at all at night would be sure to attract attention. Being far from any roads, other than 495 overhead, worked in their favor. With the rain, it was less likely that they would have random night walkers stumbling upon their camp. He felt some reassurance that the little flame was well hidden by the mylar and the brush pile. When Martin got back to their camp, Susan was turned on her other side, facing away from the fire. She had her overcoat draped over her as a blanket. Remembering how quickly she fell asleep the night before, he tried to quietly wad up the pages of his newspaper. He stuffed them in his sleeves and under his jacket to provide more insulation. He was certain that he looked like an absurd Michelin man, but he did feel warmer. He reached down to move a half-burned branch further into the fire. Beside his leg sat the multi-tool, all folded up. Thanks for following the story so far. You can check out where the story goes at mickroland.com. You can also send me any comments you might like at mick at mickroland.com. Thanks again.